After a cold reception to On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the producers of the Bond franchise looked to turn things around in just about every way they could. They traded in drama for gags, grit for gadgets, and George Lazenby for Sean Connery, returning for another last run at the role of James Bond, in the 1971 picture where Bond pursues Blofeld for revenge and Diamonds for Queen and Country. Directed by Goldfinger's Guy Hamilton, this is Diamonds Are Forever. Good evening, 003. The following is for your ears only and is classified above top secret by Her Majesty's Secret Service. Our contact with the We Can Make This Work, probably, podcast network intercepted an encrypted audio message regarding podcasters assembled. For this season, the podcast network is looking to recruit field operatives from around the world to reminisce about the Bond movies and a countdown to the latest film in the franchise, No Time to Die. Your primary objective is to infiltrate podcasters assembled by recording and uploading your submissions at probablywork.com, utilizing a two-way communications device with a built-in microphone, the latest from QBranch. For a full mission report, go to probablywork.com. We're all counting on you, 003. Assemble. Podcasters, assemble. Hi, this is Justin Aki, graphic designer and one half of Significant Otter Co. Hi, this is Ben Thompson from Badass of the Week. This is Troidal Power from the Power Playthroughs Podcast. Eric Slater here from Epic Fails of History. I'm Joseph Bigolier, director of the 13th Cross. And today we are talking about Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds Are Forever. Diamonds Are Forever is the sixth and final official Connery Bond movie. It's the seventh film in the series, and it's very loosely based on Ian Fleming's fourth Bond novel. I haven't read the book yet, but from what I understand, it's very different. For starters, uh, Blofeld isn't in the book, like at all, because he hadn't been invented yet. Diamonds Are Forever is not a good movie, but it is a great Bond movie, and I'll tell you why. I didn't think it was possible, but this movie is goofier than any spoof. This feels more like an Austin Powers movie than a Bond movie. So after Lazenby up and left, Sean Connery decided to come back for one final mission. Well, one last official one at least. I don't know, timelines are weird. I talked about this on the last episode, but one thing that really kind of bothers me about this one is that it's a follow-up to Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which took the series in a very different direction. And if you remember correctly, that movie actually ended on a cliffhanger. Uh, Blofeld killed Tracy, Bond's wife. It starts with a revenge montage, as all movies should. This movie has one of the best openings for James Bond, as uh, Sean Connery is just on a warpath looking for... Uh, Blofeld uh, to get revenge. He's beating up guys. He's kicking everybody's ass. He makes some guy yell the word Cairo without moving his mouth. He chokes a lady with her own bra. My favorite, oh, my favorite thing. When I was watching this for the first time, I was watching this with my parents, and we we all uh, busted up over this. But at the beginning of the movie, when James Bond is just like being a, a random villain, um, and the first thing he does is just come up to a woman on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> There's something I need you to get off your chest. <laughs> and he rips her, her bra off and starts choking her with it. 
and he eventually finds out where Blofeld is. He needs revenge, because in the last movie, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, Sean Connery handed off the reins to George Lazenby, who took Bond, got him married, got that wife immediately killed, and now that Connery's back, he's got to take vacation time so that he can go and avenge his dead wife. Because this is the same James Bond as was in the last one, because Sean Connery is out for revenge for the death of George Lazenby's wife. So clearly it's the same James Bond. So it's appropriate that right away Bond's out for revenge against Blofeld, but the way it's handled seems very weird. We get a montage of Bond like assaulting several people trying to get to Blofeld, and he finally supposedly tracks him down and kills him, but nothing about it feels personal. The movie opens with Bond giving out some much-needed ass-kicking hunting out Blofeld for the death of his wife. But don't worry, nothing comes out after this scene, even though Tracy deserved more. So Blofeld is apparently making like lookalikes of himself, but Bond doesn't know this. He just finds who he, he presumes is Blofeld lying in some modeling clay um, with a gun, apparently. It's weird that Blofeld in the modeling clay has a gun. But anyway, Bond kills him dead, and there we go. No more Blofeld. We did it. Good job, James Bond. He didn't even say, like, this is for Tracy, you know? He just, uh, yeah. It's very anticlimactic, but it's even weirder that, like, he doesn't actually kill Blofeld, it's just a body double. I don't know, there's... This movie's confusing. <laughs> it's all over the place. Blofeld's cat kind of cracks me up. I think that's my favorite part of this entire opening, honestly. Just kind of zooms in on Blofeld's cat and, like, goes right into the, the title sequence. Seriously, that cat gives me some serious Pet cemetery vibes. While we're talking about the credits, can I just say how much I love that this man's name is Albert Broccoli? So the title sequence for this movie is very generic. It's compared to some of the, like, the really innovative titles that we had from the last few movies, this one seems kind of lazy, honestly. And this also seems to be that point where they decided they just have to use the title in the lyrics. I do like that Shirley Bassey returned for this one. The, the lyrics to this song, though, oh my god. They, one of the lines is, stroke it and caress it. James tracked down, like, the fifth version of Lofeld we've seen, quote, kills, unquote, him, and then is put in a diamond smuggling case by M. So we learn that James Bond took vacation time to avenge his dead wife. We also learn that diamonds are being smuggled, and he needs to investigate them. This isn't really his thing, but he's going to get out there and he's going to do it. Now, right after the titles, we get M briefing Bond on a diamond smuggling operation in South Africa. So the actual plot that Bond is out to stop here is a diamond smuggling operation. Also, how come M always takes Bond out to lunch or something for missions? Wouldn't he just like, give him a file, go solve this? No, Bond gets a free drink out of it. Anyway, his sherry is actually based on an 1851 vintage wine. I found one for about $499. Funny enough, sherry made the way in the movie is actually added to over the years, up to a third each time they top it up. So there might only be a small amount of the original 1851 wine in this drink. 
Though I do like how M calls out Bond for being a know-it-all ass. He doesn't know why the diamonds are being smuggled, but what he is sure of, uh, what he is assured of, is that there's no way diamonds are being smuggled. Uh, the guy who's in charge of the diamond exchange walks him through all the security procedures that are in place that make sure that no diamonds could possibly be smuggled anywhere. And while that's happening, we get a montage showing that there's rampant diamond smuggling happening. I kind of like the way this is handled because as they're talking, we see what they're talking about, the actual operation, step by step. We then go through a fun, if convoluted, process of showing how diamonds are stolen and smuggled out of Africa. What I don't understand is why the henchmen, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, literally kill anyone involved in the process. Is it because they don't want to pay for them? Is it to hide secrets? They literally are just destroying their supply line each step of the way. Diamonds, of course, are the world's biggest racket. They grow these things in the ground and they could completely flood the market with them and make them completely worthless, except that the company that runs them, De Beers, out of South Africa, they only release a little bit at a time in order to control the, uh, the value of them, and lots of people die in the process of doing this, and a lot of people die for this and because of this, and uh, they can grow these things in a lab now, and they are completely, like, they look exactly the same under a microscope, so just keep that in mind while all of this is going down. The reason Bond is on a time crunch with the diamond smuggling is because apparently they're shutting down the ring. They are going through and taking out everybody involved with the diamond smuggling operation one by one, getting their last shipment through, and then killing people as they pass off the shipment. Um, so Bond's got to get in there and insert himself into the ring uh, ahead of the murdering that's happening. A note about the diamonds, Bond is being paid to smuggle at 50,000 carats, worth around $6,900 per carat in the 1970s which, back then, is worth $345 million, which converted today is worth $2,184,054,444.44 today. But the actual value of the carat diamonds today would only be worth about $1,420,000,000. But this is like Thunderball, where I think they were basically cornered the market on world diamonds completely. It's like 22 pounds of diamonds. James Bond travels from London to Amsterdam by hovercraft. Is this a thing? Can you still do this? I looked it up and it, it, it looks like you can take a hovercraft from mainland UK to uh, the Isle of Wight, which is now on my bucket list. Now the two folks who are killing all the people in the diamond smuggling ring are of course Mr. Kidd and Mr. Wint, two of the most iconic villains from the James Bond franchise. I love these characters. They are absolutely terrifying because they are like sadistic and malicious and delightful and also like aloof and disconnected from the massive amounts of people that they're killing so much so that they just make silly puns about the murders that they do just like agent 007 okay as much as everyone's gonna hate them i actually really do like mr wet and mr kid they're dependable idiots actually idiot is a strong word because they do their job it just infuriating how they finish each other's sentences and thoughts. I guess that they're long-term partners, it just makes sense. Uh, it's, just, it's funny how they're always in the wrong place at the right time. I can't stand Mr. Kid and Mr. Wint. They're just so ridiculous. So then we meet these weird bad guys that are involved here and they kind of come in and out until they get their balls blown off by James Bond at the end of the movie. Um, they start by assassinating a guy with a scorpion, which seems impractical but I'll concede that I've never seen it before in a movie, and I don't think I've seen it since. 
Now, unfortunately, of course, Mr. Kid and Mr. Wind are the first, like, uh, codified gay characters in the James Bond franchise. So it is unfortunate that, like, hey, we brought some gay characters in, but they are despicable, terrible human beings. Like, that's not a great implication, and I wish it was something different. But it doesn't stop me from really enjoying these characters um, for being just great, creepy henchmen. It has the most insane, um, kind of... <laughs> Uh, homophobic <laughs> bad guys you could ever think of in any movie. So James Bond takes over the role of a guy by the name of Peter Franks, who MI6's captured, and he's gonna go in and become part of the smuggling ring, which is where he meets Tiffany Case, the Bond girl for the movie. The main Bond girl in this movie is Tiffany Case, and she has some pretty cool outfits throughout the movie. And she's definitely a character, but What's with the wigs? Man, Tiffany Case actually starts out as a strong woman, smart, cunning, even has copies of like the smuggler's fingerprints to verify that Bond's the person she's supposed to meet up with. But honestly, once she's around Bond, she just turns into a useless, whiny person. For being some sort of like contact for smugglers, you'd think she would have like a slush fund or something to get her ass together. Have you noticed a weird pattern along these movies where like the women that James Bond meets are like strong, capable, independent, like badass women who are like involved with criminal enterprises or they're cops or whatever. And then the instant they have sex with James Bond, they become immediately dumber. Do you think maybe he's just giving them syphilis? She like checks his fingerprints against a computer to make sure that he is Peter Franks, which of course it says he is because he has fake fingerprints made by Q Labs. Uh, so everything's checked out, everything's going great until Q is like, oh, by the way, uh, M's been trying to get a hold of you, 007, because <laughs> Peter Franks escaped. We don't know where he is. So then Bond has to like murder the guy and he ends up murdering him in front of Tiffany Case in this like awesome, like close quarters combat fight scene inside of a cage elevator. Seriously, what the f*** is up with these old elevators? This thing is a complete death trap. This cannot be up to code. It's really cool. It actually gave me echoes watching it this time of uh, a scene that'll happen later on in Casino Royale, but we will get to that in November? There are a couple of points in this movie where Bond actually plays a decent, suave person. Uh, like when he pulls some sleight of hand to pretend to be a smuggler, um, when he's pretending to be on the moon base and he has to do that whole... Uh, radiation badge thing. He can think on his feet. Uh, even confronting Franks in the elevator playing up his bad English. Um, however, Tiffany Case, a random smuggler contact in Amsterdam, knows of James Bond, which means James Bond is still the worst spy ever. No one should ever know your secret code name. So Bond kills like this hitman and he switches identities with him. He steals his identity and he stuffs his wallet into the dead guy into the dead guy's pocket. <laughs> so she opens up the wallet and the reason she thinks that this guy is Bond is because it, he has Bond's Playboy Club credit card. Also, even she knows who James Bond is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing secret about his secret identity. I know I brought this up before, but you can't be a secret agent and a celebrity. After he kills Peter Franks, James Bond goes and switches his ID with him so that Tiffany Case goes, oh my God, you've killed James Bond. I like it. That's cute. That's good. I think my favorite quote in the movie is when Bond lies about not mixing business and pleasure. He does that constantly. That's like his trademark. 
So Tiffany Case and James Bond uh, in the guise of Peter Franks are smuggling the diamonds to Las Vegas. Okay, we are off to Vegas, baby. Um, and they uh, they fly in through U.S. Customs with the diamonds hidden in a body. And, of course, Customs has to check the body. And who's that at Customs? Why, it's Felix Leiter. That's right, he's going to be our friend in this mission because we're in America. So, of course, he's here. Once again, Felix is the real MVP in this story. A little later, we get to meet a new Felix! And then Bond takes a dead body filled with fake diamonds to the world's creepiest funeral home. I mean, the guy's name is really Morton Slumber? And then they're in the middle of the desert with a full lawn. Yeah, that works. They take the body to a funeral home, burn it, and it's a crematorium. So Bond shows up at this really creepy funeral home in the middle of the desert, and there's a guy, I kid you not, named Morton Slumber. Let me repeat that. Morton Slumber. His name basically means death sleep. So this slumber ink thing where they're gonna cremate you alive this is kind of a reference to a real life historical thing called murder ink the guys that originally founded las vegas were this criminal organization from new york and they were known as murder ink and so i think this is definitely a reference to that oh i wanted to point out that one of the slumber ink drivers slash helpers is sid haig from house of a thousand corpses fame they burn the casket with the body inside and then they bring out his ashes but they're not ashes they're a bunch of diamonds and there's like this weird complicated handoff where he goes to a specific like hole in the wall and he's supposed to put the urn there and there's an envelope for him full of cash and then mr kin mr Wind show up to burn bond alive inside of a casket now this whole sequence isn't great but it creeps me out Ah, I hate this scene. It's so terrifying. It's really upsetting. He's in the casket trying to buzz his way. He only gets saved because the diamonds are fake and somebody else shows up and pulls him out of there. But man, if you've played uh, Arkham Knight, th- you know what I'm talking about. It's creepy. Bond gets knocked upside the head and locked in a coffin and is about to be incinerated. And he's saved at the last second because just, just sheer luck. Like there's no way he would have gotten out of that situation on time. And anyway, Bond is almost cremated, which is one of the closest times he's ever come to death, because he had no control over it. He literally would have died if the mob hadn't pulled him out. But then the mob calls him out over the fake diamonds, and he says, you give me some fake money, which then he promptly goes to the casino and gets some real money from them. That was a really cool death trap, but it... I... This movie, man. (laughs) Plot makes no sense. So Bond's supposed to be paid $50,000 to smuggle in 50,000 carats of diamonds. Uh, $50,000 in 1971 is about $316,529. And there's a lot of locales throughout the movie. The cold open had, of course, Japan, Cairo. Um, After that, Bond goes to Amsterdam. He flies to the U.S. He's at the L.A. airport, LAX, in California. Um, But most of the movie takes place in Las Vegas. Not just Las Vegas, Las Vegas in the 70s. So now we get into uh, the Vegas of it all. Um, There's a lot of just, like, fun shots of, like, look how cool Vegas is. People gambling. You see a lot of circus circus throughout this movie. So this is not a great Bond movie. But I love seeing what Vegas looked like in the 70s. As someone who grew up there in the 90s, especially. I actually recognized a few locations, but it looks so different today. Man, Vegas was a real shithole in the late 60s, early 70s, wasn't it? There's a part where they're at a gas station near the Hilton, which I think they turn into uh, Willard White's uh, fake casino. 
I didn't realize at first that the Riviera was the interior, but that entire area looks so different today. I think I've been to that gas station. Like, Vegas in the 70s was so sparse compared to what it looks like today. And the few shots of the strip that they show are actually like Fremont Street in what's now known as Old Vegas. The strip as we know it today didn't exist back then. Um, but I, I do have to give a special shout out here to um, Plenty O'Toole, who shows up to help Bond play some sort of casino game. Uh, he meets a gold digger in the casino named Plenty O'Toole, and he tips her 5000 of that for literally no reason. So she got a tip in today's money of $31,652 for just being hot. She even lost the money in the first round of craps. Man, I'm in the wrong business. So we meet this weird girl who is either a terrible actress or a parody. When she introduces herself, she goes, I'm plenty. And then he looks her up and down and goes, well, of course you are. <laughs> oh, oh, that makes me die. I love that. I love that exchange so much. And then, of course, she says her, her name is Plenty, which is insane. Uh, and then she says her name is Plenty O'Toole. And he goes, name for your father, perhaps, which is a dick joke. So that's that's also the unusual thing about that do- double entendre is that it has nothing to do with female anatomy like it usually does with these Bond movies. They ran out of ideas and the writer thought was like probably writing down double entendre names, thought of Plenty O'Toole, laughed about it so hard that they were like, oh, um, okay, uh, how do I name a, a Bond girl this? Oh, she's named after her father, Plenty O'Toole. Oh, gosh. Oh, it's great. It's so great. That name, really? It's a bit much. Oh, when James Bond is with Lana Wood in the in the hotel room, she's like, I'll be back, lover, or something. And she walks off. By the way, terrible dub on her. They didn't even use her original voice, which is so sad. And uh, the voice they put on there is like over the top and ridiculous. So I don't know if it would have actually been any better. I guess we would have had to hear the original performance of Lana Wood, but we don't. But um, then, then the bad guys are in the room, and then James Bond's hands are in the air, and he goes, oh, yeah, I'm afraid you've caught me with more than my hands up. <laughs> but what I love about Plenty O'Toole is she shows up to try to have sex with James Bond and then get thrown out a window. That's all she does in the movie. She's here, he takes her upstairs, she undresses, and she gets chucked out a window into a pool. Now, I wonder when she was thrown from the hotel into the pool, if she had the money on her or she left it inside when she went to get undressed. There's also the great exchange in there um, that they stole and they put in the Wolverine, I think. It's either the Wolverine or Logan. I think it's the Wolverine. Um, Where uh, they toss her out the window and then you hear a splash. (laughs) And then... uh, and the guy goes, I didn't even know there was a pool down there. That scene where Plenty O'Toole gets thrown out the window into the swimming pool was straight up shocking. But um, she's the best secondary Bond girl in the entire series. Just out of pure um, eye candy sexiness. And I think about 9 out of 10 men will agree with me on, on the Lana Wood um, as being the second 
at least the second sexiest uh, Bond girl and uh, at, and probably the best secondary Bond girl. My secondary Bond girl, I mean like the Bond girl that's not... Usually there's like two or three Bond girls per movie. Sometimes there's only one. But there's usually like one Bond girl that has almost nothing to do with the plot. And uh, Lana Wood is just there for for eye candy and for great comic exchange and, sh and and she's great for that purpose and Sean Connery's great in it um, and it's just it's just wonderful so I love Diamonds Are Forever I love it so much she's super obnoxious and then a bunch of gangsters show up and chuck her out the window goodbye Plenty O'Toole enjoy your four minutes of being in a Bond film so we got plenty of tool uh, and she's useless so Sean Connery actually dated her during the production of this movie. I think that was her only use. This is where I start to think that maybe the Brits are making fun of Americans with this movie. So Bond is re-enveloped into the whole diamond scheme because of Tiffany Case finding out that the, the diamonds he had were fake and they want to find out where the real ones are. I love all the stuff with the mafia. And I really like that Tiffany Case is kind of in charge of the operation, but I feel like she should have been the big bad in this movie, you know? So apparently of all the people that didn't get killed, Winton Kidd didn't kill Case, who eventually finds out that Bond is a secret service agent after a bunch of ridiculousness, including a trip to the 1971 Circus Circus. The scene at Circus Circus cracks me up every time. Blow up your pants? Was blow up your pants ever a phrase? Was that ever anything that anybody said? I find it really hard to believe. Holy crap, there are a lot of kids in that casino. Nowadays, they're like super strict about kids walking anywhere near the floor, much less hanging out basically on the floor. That was insane to see. Eventually, he ends up like at a like moon base outside of Vegas. And does one of my favorite Bond moments here because he sees somebody use a key card to get in and he's like, I don't have a key card. How am I going to get in this place? And so he uh, he goes up to it and or he waits for another guy to come up, scan the key card in. And then Bond goes and pretends to scan a key card in it and just starts chatting the guy up like, oh, how's it going? How are you doing over there in G section? And then he uses all the information he finds from that guy to trick the next group of people. That's some good spy stuff, James Bond. Good job. OK, so let me get this straight. There's a diamond smuggling operation based outside of Las Vegas that employs nuclear physicists at a secret desert facility where they also just so happen to be faking the moon landings on the side? What the f*** is happening? James Bond breaks onto the set where they are faking the moon landing, steals a lunar rover, whacks a dude with the arm of the lunar rover, then drives it out into the desert and is chased by evil movie studio security guards. And this is when I really start to think that this movie is making fun of Americans. Let's see, they go from the casino to track down some diamonds at some space facility, and then Bond drives a ridiculous rover being chased by three-wheeled mobile lawsuit mobiles. And then he gets into a chase scene where he drives a moon rover 60 miles an hour across the Las Vegas desert, because that's a thing that happens. Okay, okay, so it doesn't make any sense, but my favorite vehicle is the moon buggy. Can we take a second here to appreciate the fact that James Bond knows how to drive the lunar rover? I hate the space rover. Hate. It's so dumb. It is 
impossible to look cool while riding a motorized tricycle. I'm sorry, not even Bond pulls it off, although I will give him points for the sweet dismount. But listen, that chase scene through the desert isn't the important one. The important one is the chase scene through Vegas, because it's fantastic. It's some Blues Brothers style stuff. Right after that, we get a decent chase scene in downtown Vegas with some fun destruction and cop cars getting destroyed. Uh, some great driving by Bond. I did like seeing all the extras and citizens lined up to see the movie shoot. Where they're just going all over Vegas, there's a part where he pops his car up onto two wheels to go through an alleyway and then flips it over so it's on a different two wheels when it comes out of the alley. And then it gets into a parking lot chasing. And this is like such a ridiculous chasing. Again, very Blues Brothers vibes because they're just circling a parking lot and making all these cop cars that are chasing him crash. I love the 1971 Mach 1. It's just a beast in this movie. The car chase isn't as good as the one from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, but I do love that red Mach 1 Ford. That is a dope car. And I like the stunt driving. Uh, the chase of the cops is fun, leading around the circles, the jump. That was pretty fantastic. I think he takes out like eight cop cars in a parking lot and then pulls out and drives away. It's so good. Way to go, James Bond. Also, I'm convinced of it. They are definitely making fun of America with this movie. There's some other random stuff I'm skipping over. I've already reached full fatigue on how convoluted this plot is. It's not even that long of a movie. So ultimately, uh, there's a plot going on in this movie. There's a guy by the name of Willard White who they think is connected to the diamond smuggling ring. They're not really sure how, but he's been locked away in his uh, penthouse in this hotel for ages. So this guy is almost certainly a reference to Howard Hughes. He was a very famous multimillionaire who lived in Las Vegas around these times. There was a story about Howard Hughes where one time he was watching TV from his penthouse. He was this like very famous recluse who lived alone and didn't really talk to anybody. And he didn't like what the show was, the Sunday night movie of the week. This was like pre-DVR or any of that shit. Like you had to just like whatever was on TV is what you watched. And he turned on the TV and he didn't like it. And then he owned the fucking movie company. So he called the movie station and was, he called the TV station and was like, hey, change it put something else on i want to watch this instead and they change the movie for him and so bond decides he needs to get up there and see him anyway let's see bond goes back to the white house to hang out on a crazy aquarium couch uh then he sneaks away from felix up to the penthouse in a pretty cool bondy way by riding on the outside of an elevator and using a repelling gun to get to the top and he gets up there by going and like out onto a balcony and walking across, and then he just stops walking. You're like, why did he stop walking? And then he slowly moves up, and he's stopped walking because he's standing on top of a glass elevator on the outside of the building. And that's how he's going to get up to the penthouse. My absolute favorite scene has to be Bond sneaking into Willard White's casino through the roof. He uses, like, this really cool grappling hook, and I just love, like, the city lights in the background. The whole sequence was really cool and felt very Bond. You can see very empty Vegas in the top. It's great and also totally happens in Agent Under Fire, which has to be a reference to this movie, right? It's gotta be. I really love Blofeld's office. Once again, Blofeld has some great style. His secret layers always look really cool. So here's what ultimately happens, right? He gets up to the penthouse suite and he meets Willard White, except for it's not Willard White, it's Blofeld with a voice changer. Blofeld's voice changer thingy? He, what, what is that about? Why does he have to have, like, this complex device to disguise his voice as, like, a Texan? And who's that coming into the room? It's Blofeld with a voice changer, because there's two different Blofelds, and Bond doesn't know which one's which. Bond then confronts Blofeld and Blofeld? That was pretty slick. 
And I like the voice machine they have. So he's gonna murder one of them, but he's only gonna have time to get one kill. So there's the cat, and he scares the cat, and the cat jumps at Blofeld, and Bond murders that Blofeld. Bond kills what turns out to be the devil, uh, but apparently the wrong devil. They even doubled the cats, too. I love that Blofeld's cat is an actual plot point in this one. I really like the fact that they had duplicate cats, so Blofeld could have been doubled multiple times and always have a cat. I don't know how often Blofeld's supposed to be seen, though, so it doesn't seem like a lot of wasted effort. It has to be confusing for people like us who watch this all in a row, where you see the actor that plays Blofeld was also a friend of James Bond earlier in the movie series. It'd be a fun, I don't know, theory if the guy who supposedly died back in Japan was actually Blofeld the entire time. I swear, that cat is the real mastermind. He's been behind everything for the past seven movies. Just look at those creepy, shifty eyes. And then another cat comes in and Blofeld says, right idea, wrong pushy. Uh, I mean, half of this movie you couldn't get away with nowadays, but... You know, it's not serious. It's something that, uh, that's, oh, it's so funny. It's so over the top and ridiculous. It's, it's what, it's, it's what makes that movie great. I was actually kind of wondering if this was the same cat actor since From Russia With Love, but that was like 10 years prior to this, so probably not. I totally forgot to mention this on the You Only Live Twice episode. But there's an awesome moment where an explosion goes off and Blofeld is all calm, but his cat is freaking the hell out and clawing the shit out of his arm. I don't think the cat was in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Must have had a bad appointment. Then Bond is drugged, which we haven't seen in a while because Blofeld apparently can't just shoot Bond. Uh, And then uh, Bond escapes and uses his own voice gadget to trick Blofeld, uh, finds Willard Watt, Uh, gets beat up by two other weird twin henchwomen, Bambi and Thumper, and finally meets the real sausage guy. I mean, Willard White. So Willard White's house is actually the Elrod house in Palm Springs, California. That place is amazing. I love the pool with the view above the valley. You can see a bunch of photos of it online. So they find out that Willard White is locked away at his house where there's women named Bambi and Thumper who try to kill Bond and Of course, there's the scene with uh, Bambi and Thumper. These two are probably my favorite henchmen, henchwomen in the movie. They only really get one scene, and I like that they definitely put Bond through it, but the part where he's, like, drowning them in the jacuzzi just felt wrong. So James Bond gets into a fistfight with two gymnast ladies who are very strange, and the entire fight is very weird. There's no music. And the whole time, all I'm thinking is, is this supposed to be comedy? Is this supposed to be badass? Or is this supposed to be foreplay? Is this porn or is this awesome? Or is this a joke? I don't know. I don't know what anything is anymore. Then they bring him back to the science lab where there's a satellite missing that Blofeld somehow stole. This movie's so, so insane. It's really hard to kind of describe just how bonkers it really is. And there's this tape that is the controls for the satellite. What's up with the cassette thing? And he's put diamonds all over the satellite so it makes a giant space laser just like in Die Another Day. And then they're on an oil rig and Bond has to go there and stop them. The end of this movie gets real convoluted and weird. Blofeld's plot is insane in this movie. Which is really saying something compared to his elaborate plots from the last few movies. They finally go after Blofeld uh, in his worst hideout ever. 
because it can't move and everyone knows he's there. I do love a good oil rig action set piece. Blofeld then proceeds to destroy some missiles in Kansas, the USSR, and China with the world's fakest on fire man. Bond manages to switch the tapes uh, and uh, he like puts the real control tape into Tiffany Case's bikini bottoms and then she switches them back because she didn't realize that he'd already switched them. Also, Tiffany Case is an idiot. So then Bond's like, we gotta shut this thing down some other way and Blofeld's trying to escape because the military's showing up. This is a lot happens at the end here. But what, the way they stop this satellite, okay, is that Blofeld's trying to escape in a little submarine that's being lowered by a crane. Which leads Bond to having used Blofeld's battle sub, which is more like a tiny UFO with a gas tank of a motorcycle. Where's this guy supposed to escape to? So Bond takes over the crane and uses the little submarine as a wrecking ball to just wreck house on the control center for the satellite, which I guess saves the day. Good job, Bond. Well, there's a guy whose only job is apparently to do announcements and countdowns, and he's just broadcasting to the entire oil rig the entire time. What it doesn't do is kill Blofeld. They never go check to see like, hey, maybe did we kill Blofeld? You know, the last movie, James Bond thought he killed Blofeld on the side of a mountain and he just left him there and didn't check. And then Blofeld came back and killed his wife. And in this movie, James Bond thinks he killed Blofeld in an oil rig and he doesn't go check. What a dummy. You know, I was thinking about it. And for all of his Lex Luthor style scheming, Blofeld is actually way more like the Joker. His motivations are completely unpredictable. You never quite know what you're gonna get, and he somehow reinvents himself every single time. He also has that weird thing where it feels like he's losing on purpose, or at least keeping Bond alive just so they can keep doing their cat and mouse game. Now we've established that there's a grand tradition in the James Bond franchise of ending the movie with James Bond on a boat with a woman, and in this one they're on a huge luxury cruise liner, compliments of Willard White, and everything's delightful and calm and peaceful. Bond then takes the scenic route on a 14-day cruise back to the UK, where I don't know how Wint and Kid got on the uh, the boat, but they're there. It's another trope in James Bond movies, which is when the bad guys come back right at the end and almost kill James Bond. I will say one of my favorite parts in the whole movie, though, is the scene with the two of them showing up at the end on the cruise ship. And in this one, it's Mr. Kid and Mr. Wint show up as, uh, as, as uh, waiters, bringing him a private meal with all the wine and bond figures out they're fake because he said something about the wine that didn't make sense uh, anyway they hack of a bond plan and a full dinner for bond where they give the know-it-all a mutin rothschild 55 actually found one for the low cost of 1200 and up to 2800 and they've got a bomb and they should have just shot him right they could have walked in the room dressed in their waiter outfits pulled out guns and shot him but instead they've got this convoluted thing with the waiters and the bomb and the wine and instead Bond kills them both. And the way that Bond dispatches them is is just too good. He's done all this crazy shit leading up to this and then runs into the last two guys. You think maybe they're gonna get the drop on him. You're thinking, holy shit, they're gonna kill another one of his girlfriends in the last scene of the movie. Nope, that he kicks the dude in the balls, straps a bomb to him, throws him off into the ocean, blows the dude's nuts off. Everybody's happy, James Bond wins. And that is Diamonds Are Forever. Goodbye. Um, with the most insane death uh, you will ever see in a Bond movie. He, of course, recognizes them and defeats them, and that's the end of the movie. It's so over the top. This movie's ridiculous. I mean, Bond ends up on a boat with a girl. Oh, it's so great. It's so great. Diamonds are forever. It's a terrible movie, but it's so great at the same time. Diamonds are forever is often maligned, I feel like. I think people... 
don't like it for being silly. Um, it, it definitely does feel like a precursor to where the Roger Moore movies end up going. It has the best double entendres in the entire series. And as far as Sean Connery's career goes, I think Roger Moore might have taken it a little further. But as far as Sean Connery's stuff goes, yeah, peak, absolute peak uh, double entendre. To me, Diamonds Are Forever is where the Bond series as a whole really went off the tracks. This feels more like a Roger Moore entry than a Sean Connery entry. In fact, this movie would probably have been a lot better with Roger Moore in it. It's everything that you remember Bond being. It's one of the funnest Bond movies. It's one of the most ridiculous Bond movies. I gotta be honest, I really liked watching this movie. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it had great action. It had great goofs. I... This really is where the franchise completely lost its way. So yeah, not really a whole lot else to say about this entry. Um, it's not my favorite, but it is so bad that it's kind of good. I think I like Diamonds Are Forever a lot. And while it's not necessarily the best representation of Sean Connery as James Bond, it might be my favorite of the Sean Connery James Bond movies because I come to James Bond for fun. And this movie's pretty dang fun. It's a ridiculous movie that I'm sure like lots of other people bring up other scenes, but uh, oh man, just just the moments in Diamonds Are Forever equal just a great watch, uh, no matter what. <laughs> Podcasters Assemble will return in Live and Let Die. Live and let die. Podcasters Assemble Season 003 is a production of the We Can Make This Work Probably Podcast Network. Find more of our shows at probablywork.com and learn how to contribute to future episodes of Podcasters Assemble by looking us up on Twitter at Casters Assemble or joining our Discord server, link in the show notes. Submissions are always open. Thank you to everyone who was able to contribute to this episode. Be sure to check the show notes for links where you can find them all online. Thank you. This has been a presentation of the We Can Make This Work Probably Network. Follow us on Twitter at Probably Work for more of our questionable content. Also, we have a website called probablywork.com. So my new theory is that he's not after money. He's not secretly trying to save the world, or destroy it for that matter. All he really cares about is James Bond, his one and only friend in the whole world. The only person who saw past his scarred, ugly face. The only one who would play along with him. The only one who appreciates his elaborate death traps and the armies of disposable henchmen in matching uniforms. You see, secretly, the only reason that Blofeld keeps ransoming the world with nuclear warheads or laser satellites is because deep down, he just wants to be loved. That's why he didn't kill Bond and he only lived twice. That's why he killed Tracy in Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And that's why he faked his own death, got plastic surgery twice, cloned himself a dozen times, faked the moon landing, took over a diamond smuggling operation, and impersonated a casino owner with a Texan accent. It was all a desperate cry for attention. He was jealous of all the attention that Bond was giving to all those other villains. And women. But he just wanted him for himself. It's kind of sad, really.